All right, let's pray. God, we thank you once again for who you are, that you are the creator of all things, that you put each star in place, and you know each star by name, and yet you care about us, that we are important to you, that you love us, and that you are uh, concerned about us. God, what a, what a thing that you would even take time to, to show us the care and, and love and concern that you do. God, we, help, we pray that you would help us to understand you and your word more fully, and that we would honor you in everything that we do, and that we would have a greater understanding and appreciation of who you are. Amen. All right, we just have to pray and people start showing up. That's good. All right, well, today for review, I want to go back and look at where we're at during this Passion Week, this last week of Christ uh, before going to the cross. Uh, we've covered a, a lot of ground already within Passion Week, and I think it's good to kind of ground ourselves and remind ourselves of where we're at. And there's a lot of information that we have about the final week of Jesus within uh, not just the Gospels, but within Mark itself. But there's not a whole lot of consensus about when certain things take place. There's disagreement about when different events happen. For instance, we've talked before about the triumphal entry and how we've kind of dubbed that as Palm Sunday, right? But a lot of people think maybe that was actually Palm Monday. It was the triumphal entry that took place on Monday rather than Sunday. Um, Wednesday in Passion Week has a lot of variation within it. It's often called Silent Wednesday because people will say that there's nothing that took place on that Wednesday. And then other people will say, well, no, it wasn't silent at all. There's quite a bit that took place on Wednesday. Uh, and then the crucifixion itself, there's different views and opinions about when the crucifixion took place. Was it on Friday, Good Friday, as we often call it? Or did it happen to take place on Thursday? Um, again, there's not a whole ton of consensus. There, there's a majority view for sure, but there are different uh, understandings about when different events took place. And so the way that I'm going to lay it out for us today, I'm going to focus on the days and when these, uh, what took place on what day. So if you're of the persuasion and perspective that the triumphal entry was on Sunday, then that would be day one. If you're more of the persuasion that it was on Monday, then Monday would be day one. But I want to go back and recount for us these different days of Passion Week and what took place on what day. So going back to Mark 11, Mark 11 is when the triumphal, triumphal entry took place. And so Mark 11, verses 1 through 10, uh, record for us the triumphal entry of Jesus, day one of Passion Week. And remember that all throughout Mark, Mark has been building up to this point, right? He doesn't start off his narrative in Jerusalem, as John does. He starts it off up in, in Galilee, up where Jesus is in the north and the ministry that he has up in the north. And everything is kind of building up to his coming to Jerusalem. He's presented as the suffering servant all throughout Mark's gospel, right? How he touches and, and shows compassion to this leper and heals this leper. How he forgives sins, how he's casting out demons, how he's uh, preaching of the kingdom of God, how he's raising the dead. He's suffering servant all throughout, uh, loving on these people. Even as he's schooling the Pharisees and showing that he is Messiah, but he is... Uh, portraying Jesus as the suffering servant. And him entering into Jerusalem is the pinnacle of his suffering. That is when Jesus is going to really uh, show that he, he, he comes into Jerusalem humble and lowly mounted on a donkey, right? Not riding in on a horse. He is there to serve. He is there because he is there to die. And um, also within or on this first day of the triumphal entry, um, this is the day when Jesus went to Bethany, to Simon the leper's house. We looked at last week, and he was anointed by Mary. I know that we just looked at this last week, that we find it in our narrative in chapter 14. We have to remember that Mark's account isn't chronological. He's not giving a point-by-point 
as far as this took place and then this and then this. And so we believe that this anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary took place on this first day of the triumphal entry. I'm going to read Mark 11, 11. It says there that Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. So that's how Jesus wrapped up this first day of ministry. He goes in, he checks out the temple, um, just kind of uh, taking a peek at the temple, and then he goes home and goes to bed. Well, the next day starts day two of Passion Week, verses 12 through 19. And on day two of Passion Week is when we see the fig tree being cursed, when we see uh, the temple being cleansed, Jesus going in and cleansing out the temple. And could I get somebody to read for us verses 19 and 20 of Mark 11? And this will tie day two into day three. Who's got 19 and 20? All right, so there we see this transition, right? He curses a fig tree, goes in, cleanses out the temple, making all kinds of friends, right? And then he goes home, comes back the next day. And on day three is when we see um, the results of the fig tree. The fig tree being explained. There's a lot of teaching that goes on within the temple on day three. He goes back to the temple and this is when he's teaching on uh, taxes and on marriage and um, they're trying to trip him up and there's a ton of teaching that goes on back in the temple, which I just love that he goes in to the temple the day after cleansing out the temple and uh, making everybody mad and angry. He's like, I'm going to go back there because it's my temple, right? Uh, my father's house is not a den of robbers. And so he goes back to the temple. And in verse 27, it says that they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And this is when they begin questioning his authority and asking him uh, how he does all these things, by what authority he does these things. Day three is also the day when the Olivet Discourse takes place, which is the bulk of Mark 13, where we've been spending a lot of our time lately looking at the Olivet Discourse. That takes place on day three. And as Jerry explained last week, a Jewish day begins at sundown, begins at dusk. And so if we look at Mark 13, verse 1, it says that as he was going out of the temple, so he was in the temple on, on day three, doing all this teaching, answering these questions, and this is setting up the Olivet Discourse. So as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now remember, well, maybe you don't remember, but um, Josephus, he talked about how the temple was so beautiful and it was so spectacular and how people, especially during the sunset, they liked, uh, they could just see the splendor of the temple and the sun shining off of the temple. And so, um, I'm, I think that the, the Olivet Discourse actually carried through from day three to day four as Jesus goes on to the Mount of Olives and into the evening, he's giving this Olivet Discourse about the things to come, about these future things. We can pair that with Luke 21, 37 and 38, which says, now during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning and come to him in the temple to listen to him. So during the day, he's in the temple. At night, he goes to the Mount of Olives and it seems like um, he would even sleep there. But he went there and he was teaching on the Mount of Olives. So again, I think that this Olivet Discourse in chapter 13 takes us from day three of Passion Week into day four of Passion Week. Now, we see day four, which again, some people have dubbed Silent Wednesday. Um, we do see a couple things taking place on day four. In Mark 14, 1 and 2, we see the, the plot to kill Jesus. It says in 14, 1, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and to kill him. And they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So even though on this day we don't see 
Jesus doing anything. We don't see uh, teachings or miracles or anything taking place. We see in the background there's this plot going on about how to kill Jesus. And if we jump down um, this section here from 3 to 9, that's, again, that text of what took place in Bethany at Simon the leper's house back on day one. But if we jump down to verses 10 and 11, we'll get a little bit more background information about how Judas is scheming to and plotting against Jesus himself. It says in 14.10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. So day four, there's some background stuff going on. Chief priest plotting, uh, and then uh, Judas trying to see how he could betray his Lord. And then day five uh, is what we're going to be looking at today. And we did already start that a little bit last week. It takes place from chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. And this encompasses the Passover and the Lord's Supper. And again, I was glad last week that Jerry pointed out how much more John's account really gets into the, the depth of this time frame. John, he'll cover the washing of the disciples' feet, which took place at Passover, uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and that whole discourse, how he is the vine and we are the branches. In chapter 16 of John, he goes into more detail about the, the Holy Spirit and the works of the Holy Spirit. We see the, um, the disciples' prayer, the, the high priestly prayer, rather, Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17. There's a lot more detail in the book of John about what's taken place during this time period that is summed up in Mark with just several verses, verse 12 through 31 of chapter 14. So that's, in a nutshell, the Passion Week of Christ, the time frame, timeline of his Passion Week so far in Mark. Any thoughts or questions about any of that before we jump into our text on the Lord's Supper? There are a lot more better excellent summaries out there. Um, I tried to, I pulled one up that was really good and it had uh, cross references. So it went across and it had, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and passages from each one of them. And I went to print it out and it was 24 pages. And I decided, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> what's that? Yeah, real brief. Uh, but yeah, just, it's, it's fun. I was telling, um, who was I think, I don't know. Uh, I think it was Caleb I was telling this week that I like to uh, piece things together and try to figure out what goes where. It's kind of like a, a puzzle or a mystery that we get to solve and trying to figure out what took place on what day. Not that there's any massive relevance to it. It doesn't make any difference. Um, but this is our Lord, and looking at his, his final week is intriguing to me. So, Any other thoughts or questions? All right. Well, we will jump into a discussion on the Lord's Supper then. Um, so, as I mentioned, the fifth day of Passion Week, already started back in verse 12. Um, that's when it was the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. But in verses 17 through 21, this was the evening of the fifth day, which... Remember, the evening is the beginning of the next day, so it's the, the fifth day going into the sixth day of the Passion Week when Jesus sat down. And verse 17 says, When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And so he goes in, he identifies Judas as his betrayer, and then he dismisses him from the mill, from the Passover mill. He says, what you're going to do, go out and do quickly. So Judas wasn't, he was there at the beginning, but he's not going to be present during this latter section that we're going to be discussing today when Jesus is initiating the Lord's Supper. Judas has already been identified as the betrayer. He's been dismissed and he's off uh, presumably doing quickly what Jesus told him to do, right? He's going and getting uh, his, uh, his partners in the betrayal of Jesus and he's going to meet up with Jesus again just to 
a number of hours and betray him with a kiss. Could I get somebody to read for us our, our passage, verses 22 through 26 of Mark 14? Good stuff in there. And then verse 26 says, After seeing him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so by that point, when they're going out to the Mount of Olives, that will have already initiated the sixth day of Passion Week. Uh, at some point within there, but certainly when he's going out to the Mount of Olives, that day will have, would have already began. So remember here that they're observing the Passover meal together, right? This ancient meal that's been around for a thousand years plus at this point, uh, an annual observance. And it had a very rigid order to this meal, a very rigid liturgy where they would eat certain things at certain times and um, discuss in, in certain ways the importance of this meal. Jesus here comes and he adds to the liturgy of the Passover meal in a very important way, in a way that uh, he's going to take and really initiate a new observation altogether in this observation of the Lord's Supper. And this is a, a super familiar passage to us, right? We're going to be observing the Lord's Supper today. We have the, the elements up here, the cup and the bread, uh, not like right now during Sunday school, but later today in, in our main service is what we're going to be doing and this is a, a regular practice, not just at this church, but for Christians all over the place, right? This is something that we are really familiar with. And so what are the, the two items in our passage that Jesus grabs and he uses as object lessons, that he uses as teaching illustrations? Bread and wine. Yeah, bread and wine, right? Very simple. Again, we, we know this. This is common to us. And what does he compare them to? You know, his body and the blood, right? Now, this is really important. This is where a lot of uh, disagreement and, and controversy comes into play. What word does Jesus use to compare the bread to his body and the wine to his blood? It is. Yes, it is. What did you say? Same thing. Yeah, it's... Uh, a one-to-one -one comparison, right? That the bread is my body, the wine is my blood. And again, that's where a, a lot of uh, confusion and, and differences of opinion have come into play with the way that Jesus presents these things as being equivalent with his body and his blood. And essentially, all Christians recognize the importance of this night, of what Jesus was doing in establishing the observation of the Lord's Supper. Um, some understand it differently, however. Um, there are major disagreements about the meaning of Jesus' words, and we're going to look at four different views about this, or of this ordinance, and different ways that we could understand this ordinance. So the first way that we're going to look at is this view of transubstantiation. Uh, I know that's a big word. I know some of you are familiar with it, and it's not scary at all, but seeing that for the first time, it could be uh, quite scary. Don't check out, all right? We're going to talk about this view of transubstantiation, and you see there next to it that it's also called the real presence because that's really what it means. That it is the real presence of Jesus. It's an understanding that when that to, to observe this uh, Lord's Supper is to actually consume the body and the blood of Jesus, that to take the bread and the cup and to uh, eat them is to consume Jesus himself. That's what transubstantiation is. This is held primarily by Roman Catholics. We'll see that oftentimes in, in movies, right? And um, see this portrayed. Or Eastern Orthodox, they hold to this view of transubstantiation. Episcopalians also hold to this view. And again, it holds that, the, or maintains that the elements contain the fullness of Christ. His body, blood, soul, and divinity are all wrapped up in the elements once they're blessed and consecrated by the priest. Then they become even uh, molecularly or elementally, they become the, the body and the blood of Christ. 
I have this uh, quote here. This is Article 5 of the Tridentine Creed from the Council of Trent, which took place uh, like right after the Reformation. We think of the Reformation of as starting in 1517-ish, right? That's a kind of roundabout date. But 1550-ish was the Council of Trent. And Article 5 says that in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, or the Lord's table, right, there is truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there is made a conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood, which conversion the Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. So again, they think that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ and that the, the cup or the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ, that it's a, a conversion or a transubstantiation that it actually changes into the body and blood of Christ. And this is a... A uh, pretty big deal, right? It's a, a pretty big difference of opinion on how we view this uh, this observance of the Lord's Supper. This view maintains that the Lord's Supper is pro- propitiatory in nature, or in other words, that it offers an ongoing forgiveness of sins. Uh, propitiation in 1 John 2, 1 or 2, uh, talks about propitiation, how Jesus offered his body on the cross as a propitiation, as a a satisfactory payment for our sin, that God would look at what Jesus did and he'd say, yes, that's sufficient, that's enough. Well, this view says that when the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, that's the term they would use, when that's observed, that Jesus is re-offering his body for the sins of his people. And again, that's a, a pretty big deal, right? It's an a enormously big difference. That's why the Reformation really sprouted up to begin with. There's a whole issue of you know, justified by faith alone and sola scriptura and all that. But really, the, the whole issue of communion and the meaning of communion was at the heart of the Reformation. <clears throat> and this is a, a big deal on, on both sides. Both those who hold to this view of transubstantiation will realize this is a a dividing point, right? And those who don't hold to the view of transubstantiation also realize this is a a point that we will divide over. We will uh, make separations and uh, worship separately over this view. Uh, At the Council of Trent, this is uh, Canon 1 of the Council of Trent, it says that if anyone denieth that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ, but saith that he is only therein as in a sign or a figure or virtue, let him be anathema. That means let him be damned, let him be cursed, let him go to hell. So they're saying if you deny the fact that Jesus is literally within the, the bread and the cup, then you're anathema, you're damned to hell. That's a, a pretty big point from their viewpoint, right? They're not mincing words on that. Uh, in fact, they go on in count, Canon 8 of the Council of Trent, and they say, if anyone saith that Christ, given in the Eucharist, is eaten spiritually only, and not also sacramentally or really, let him be anathema. So they've repeated this twice in two different ways within that one uh, council. We also see from Scripture, right, that's where we always want to go. We want to base our theology off of Scripture. In Hebrews 10, I just skipped over that, Hebrews 10.10 says that we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. That's important. Jesus offered his body once for all, right? Not once for all people, once for all time. Um, in the sense that it doesn't need to be done over and over and over again as uh, the transubstantiation view holds to. Uh, Hebrews 10.12 goes on to say, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 
one offering. What Jesus did on the cross was sufficient, right? He paid it all. It is paid in full. To tell us that it's, it is finished. That's the view of the author of Hebrews. So this is a, a pretty big deal and uh, has caused division within church history. And even today, it's what separates many churches. The Catholic Church, they're trying to figure out where they're at right now because they have a, a pope who will, will he's open to, to everybody and everything. There was that clip five or six years ago of him talking to the atheist boy, or I don't even know if the boy was atheist, but his dad was atheist, and he was telling him, my dad's an atheist, and is he going to be in heaven? Is he going to go to hell? And he said, well, he sent you to church, and, and he cared about your spirituality, so yeah, you'll see him in heaven. But yeah, so... The, yeah, he's become very liberal, and there is a whole section of the Catholic Church that follows him in his liberality, and then there are some that are more conservative and more old school. Um, so, yeah, it really depends on, on who you ask. But as far as their, like their doctrinal statement, the, the Council of Trent, that's still, uh, that's still active. Um, and that says, yeah, anybody else would be anathema. Any other thoughts or questions on this view of transubstantiation? All right, that's real riveting stuff, huh? All right, let's talk about another view on the Lord's Supper. Consubstantiation. Um, this is different from transubstantiation. And this view was developed by Martin Luther, so same kind of time period that we were just dealing with with the Council of Trent. Uh, it's developed by Martin Luther, and it's held today by Lutherans primarily, and some Anglicans and Episcopalians will hold to this view. Uh, this view holds that the bread and the wine remain conjointly with Christ. It's not my words, it's their words. Um, again, their words that Jesus is in, with, and under the elements. So where the transubstantiation view will say that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ, uh, Martin Luther would maintain, well, no, the, the bread is still bread and the wine is still wine. It still uh, maintains its chemical makeup. It's still food. But Jesus somehow is in, with, and under. That's like the terminology that Martin Luther used and that his followers hold on to, that he is in, with, and under the elements, that it's, it's both and. It is still food, but it's still Jesus. And the transubstantiation view would say, no, it's, it's just Jesus now. Even though it looks like bread and wine, it's just Jesus. Um, so looking at the, the prefixes of these big, long words, transubstantiation and consubstantiation. Trans, we know in our 21st century world, right? In 2023 means to change. Uh, we know that with transgenders, right? With the liberal world, again, saying that, yes, a man can become a woman. He can be changed into a woman, or a woman can be changed into a man. Uh, this view of transubstantiation says that the substance or the essence of the, the elements actually change into Jesus. And consubstantiation, that prefix con means with. And so Martin Luther and, and his followers, those who hold to this view of consubstantiation or, or sacramental union is the term that they prefer, they'll say, no, it's, it's a union of the, the food, of the elements with Jesus, that they are together in, with, and under, that it's not a, a change, but it's both and. And so Luther offered this different view from Rome's. Remember that Luther came up out of Romanism, Romanism, uh, Roman Catholic as a Roman Catholic. I don't even know what I was trying to say. He was once a Roman Catholic, and he uh, revolted and rebelled against that, right? Um, and so he's holding on to a lot of those same things, but he's at the same time rebelling against some of those concepts. Uh, this is from Luther's larger catechism. Catechism just trying to teach the kids in a, a question-and-answer format. So the question of this catechism, or this section of the catechism says, what is the sacrament of the altar? The answer is that it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in and under the bread and wine, 
which we Christians are commanded by the word of Christ to eat and to drink, and as we have said of baptism, that it is not simple water. So here also we say the sacrament is bread and wine, and not mere bread and wine, such as are ordinarily served at the table, but bread and wine comprehended in and connected with the word of God. So, again, he says it's, it's both and. It's food, but Jesus is still there too. It's not just ordinary food. Um, I've heard somebody say that it's kind of like a, a sponge, how a sponge will soak up water or wine or juice or whatever it is, uh, whatever's poured upon it, and it's both the the sponge still and the wine. We'll use that for an illustration. And that in the view of consubstantiation, again, it's both the body and Jesus' body, or yeah, both Jesus' body and the bread, and it's the wine and yet Jesus' blood at the same time, both and. Thoughts or views on or thoughts or questions on consubstantiation as a view? Yes, Hayden. So if they don't believe it's just a remembrance, um, what makes that piece of bread different from a different piece of bread? Um, it depends on who you ask. So the, the Catholics would say, no, that's like, it really is Jesus because it's been consecrated by the priest. The priest has prayed over it, and at that point, it becomes Jesus. And then the, the Lutherans, they would say, well, yes, it is Jesus, but it's still bread. You wouldn't be able to put it under a microscope and, and see Jesus. You would still see bread, but in a, some kind of spiritual sense, Jesus is there. He is in with and under the, the elements. And when we partake of the sacrament, we are ingesting Jesus. So the pastor, for the Lutherans, the pastor is not turning it into that. It just is that. No, it... it takes place again when it's blessed, when it's blessed I believe. That's when it turns into mm -hmm. part. Mm -hmm. And within the Roman Catholic Church, people will actually come in and genuflect toward the, the Eucharist. They'll like bow down and, and worship the, the elements because it's Jesus. I mean, if you're going to be consistent and, and Jesus is here like in body and, and blood before us, we should honor that and, and they will. They'll come in and they'll genuflect toward the Eucharist. Logan. So, um, you know, people use different, some people use grape juice. Yeah. Wine. Uh, would that cross a line if it's not bread and wine? With like certain that? churches, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. It's uh, fruit of vine, right? Um, the Mormon church, they'll use water. I think that's a, a step too far. It doesn't represent the, the blood of Christ in the same way that grape juice would. Uh, Welch's is fairly recent. That came about because somebody had a, a conviction against wine and they wanted to offer some kind of substitute. Any other questions on these two views? So, summary, transubstantiation, magically changed, consubstantiation, Jesus marinade, basically. <laughs> Jesus marinade, but still a, a magical change but it still maintains the, the food, the element of food. That's the biggest difference in my understanding. All right, let's move on to the third view, the Reformed view. This view was developed by John Calvin. He came along shortly after Martin Luther and is held today by Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists. Uh, so it's still a, a fairly popular view today. The reformers, remember, were called the reformers because they reformed against the Roman Catholic Church. And so these three views were um, all very popular around the time of the Reformation. And they were just barely coming out of uh, this very, very strong pressure of the Roman Catholic Church and this view of transubstantiation being pushed and pressed upon them. So you can see a lot of the, uh, the remnants of that pressure, uh, even within their views. And so they reformed against the Roman Catholic Church because of their view on or transubstantiation. And uh, this is the view that John Calvin developed out of that. And I'm going to read to us from the 
1689 London Baptist Confession. That's the confession that the that Reformed Baptists hold to. And later I'll read from the Westminster Confession, which is very similar. They're like neck and neck. The big major difference between those two confessions is uh, baptism and whether or not they can baptize their babies. So Presbyterians hold to the Westminster Confession and they'll say, yes, we can dunk our kids. And the Baptists will say, no, we, we wait until they're older to dunk them. Uh, but this is from 1689, London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 30, section 6. And it says, That doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant. That's a strong word, right? It's repugnant, not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, they're really going at it now. Not just, is it unbiblical? It doesn't even make sense, you guys, right? It's what they're saying. Other overthroweth the nature of the ordinance and hath been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. So here we see that they're really going after transubstantiation, right? Really going after the Roman Catholic Church and saying, they're unbiblical. They don't even make sense. They're so stupid in their, their view of transubstantiation in nicer, cleaned-up words, right? It, it, they're repugnant, not stupid. Um, but this really doesn't say what they believe. It doesn't give a, a positive affirmation of their view. It's a, a denial of the view of transubstantiation. And so we'll look to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, again, is nearly identical with the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And it says what they do believe. It says that worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death. There's a lot going on there. You might want to work through that again. Uh, read it slowly. Maybe I'll even read it slowly again for us because uh, it's a, a unique view. So it says, worthy receivers, uh, specifying and uh, fencing the table, not just anybody can take of the Lord's table, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of visible elements in this sacrament do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, that's an important section there, they truly, really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death. So they would say, you're not actually, when you take bread and wine, you're not biting into the physical body of Christ, but you're biting into the spiritual body of Christ. That when you throw back that, that wine or that grape juice, that you are spiritually consuming Christ, but not physically, but really and indeed. Don't don't forget that. You really are consuming Christ, just not in a physical sense. It's in a spiritual sense. That is the view uh, that they hold to. And it goes on and says, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine. That's a knock against consubstantiation, Martin Luther's view. They're saying, no, not like that. Yet, as really, but spiritually, present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So again, they'll say, seems like you're just eating bread and wine, but really spiritually you are ingesting Christ. It's not physically Christ, it's spiritually Christ. That's where the major difference in these two views would be. Spiritual, not physical. Um, they would say that we are feeding upon Christ, but in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. Again, uh, borrowing language from the Westminster Confession of Faith, really and indeed, they're spiritually feeding upon Christ. They say that the sacraments carry us up to Jesus. That's the terminology that they would use, uh, that by consuming the, the sacraments, we are carried up to Christ. We become more spiritual. We have this uh, special connection with Christ. Uh, they'll, when when administering the elements, I'll say Christ is offered to you within this view. Like he is really, or yeah, really and indeed, spiritually in a sense, he is being offered to you. 
Calvin said that observing the Lord's Supper was a special way of uniting the Lord, uniting with the Lord on a higher level. Uh, and he went on to declare that it wasn't just an empty ritual, which is kind of a, a knock against, uh, a jab against memorialism, the fourth view that we'll look at. Uh, but before we get there, are there any thoughts or questions on this third view, the Reformed view? All right. Well, we will look at the fourth view, the memorial view, the right one, in my opinion. <laughs> um, this is uh, just kind of to answer that last quote that, that we read, or that I, I quoted from uh, Calvin, saying that, well, it's, it's a, a real a real thing that we're doing, this observation. It's not just some, you know, light thing that we do and, um, how did he put it? Uh, declaring that it wasn't just an empty ritual. So it, it isn't just an empty ritual. When we observe the Lord's Supper, it's not just an, an intellectual affair where we're recalling facts about our Lord, that he, he was crucified and he was dead and he was buried the third day according to the Scriptures. It's not just uh, 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 remembering facts about Christ, but we are truly engaging relationally with God on a a spiritual level. We are communing with him, not just with him, but also with his body, with the church, Uh, both horizontally and and vertically. We are communing with the Lord and with his body. That's why we call it communion, because there is a communal aspect to it. However, I don't see it as being any different from the way that we commune with God and with each other through prayer or through singing or through preaching and, and teaching of the word of God. When we are coming together to observe the Lord's Supper, there's not some spiritual, mystical way in which we're connecting with God on a higher level, as John Calvin said, than when we pray or sing or do these other spiritual things. Uh, we are communing with God, but biblically, we don't see that there's any reason to put communion on a higher spiritual level, that we are connecting with him or receiving more grace from him when we are remembering Christ in this way. This is just a different way that we remember Christ and his sacrifice for us. Uh, The memorial view would reject the notion that ingesting Christ in the the process of communion, that that we are ingesting Christ in in any way. We're not ingesting Christ physically. We're not ingesting Christ in a, a spiritual sense as the Reformed view would hold to, and that he isn't present in the elements at all. That what we are doing is we are ingesting bread that is just bread. We are ingesting wine that is just wine. And, and that's all we're doing. Well, we're not even ingesting wine, right? We're ingesting grape juice, um, which is representative of the blood of Christ. And we don't believe that he is present in them whatsoever. We are just remembering what he has done for us. This view emphasizes the words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11 in particular, to do this in remembrance of me. This is, really, it's a purpose statement that Jesus is giving, that this is something that you are to do. That's a command, right? You are to do this. Why are you to do this? He says right there within the text, you are to do this in remembrance of me. So 1 Corinthians 11, 24 uh, says that when he had When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So that's the the purpose for which he gave this command, in remembrance of him. Uh, Not because he is going to uh, come to us, give us some special grace or blessing, not because... Uh, we are that he is offering his body once again, as the transubstantiation view says, that uh, he is forgiving sin whenever we are observing this. That's, uh, that's heretical. That's what that is, that view. Um, we are just remembering what Christ has done for us. And kind of bringing this all together and comparing these views a little bit, the first two views, the view of transubstantiation and consubstantiation, we can kind of group them together and we can say that they agree in the fact that Jesus is physically present within the elements. They'll disagree on, on some uh, minor facts, right? Martin Luther says, no, he's, he's in with and under the elements. 
And the Roman Catholic Church says, no, it, it becomes Jesus. At the end of the day, they both think that Jesus is physically present within the elements. <coughs> and <coughs> the latter two views, the reform view and the mor- moral, memorial view, agree in understanding Jesus' words as being a met- metonymy. I've got to work on saying that right. A metonymy. Um, which is just a, a figure of speech. And so we're familiar with the, the figure of speech of a, a simile, right? What is a simile? All you uh, homeschooling English teachers out there. Yeah, it's to compare something using the words like or as, right? And we see this all the time through Scripture. Uh, Matthew twenty three twenty seven says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs, right? Jesus wasn't saying that you are actually whitewashed tombs, you are like whitewashed tombs. Or Matthew thirteen thirty one, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Or in three sixteen, the Spirit of God was descending as a dove, right? It's a figure of speech that we're really familiar with, right? This simile. Well, a metonymy is a figure of speech that typifies or replaces a word or concept with another word that is closely associated with it. So it functions as a a stand-in or as a a picture that represents something else. So an example of a metonymy is that yesterday, several in our church body dropped what they were doing to give Joseph and Daniela a hand in moving, right? So when I use the phrase dropped in that sentence, it acts as a stand-in for uh, stopping to perform other tasks, right? There wasn't something that was like physically dropped, but we just stopped performing other tasks. Greg's like, no, I actually dropped stuff because I had to run over there. And uh, when I use the word hand, that people went over and they gave them a hand, we didn't actually like cut off a hand and here you go, Joseph. Uh, but it's used as a replacement for helped, right? Uh, a very common, popular example of this uh, figure of speech, metonymy, is that the pen is mightier than the sword. You guys have heard that phrase before, right? The pen is mightier than the sword. That doesn't mean you go to battle with a bunch of big pens, right? We don't, uh, I, I don't, you look at our, our military budget, we might have like big pens that cost millions of dollars because money's being spent somewhere else. But um, what that phrase really is meant to mean, the pen is mightier than the sword, is that written communication is superior to brute force, right? So the pen is a stand-in for written communication. Sword is a stand-in for uh, brute force, for going to battle. And so Jesus was establishing a, a metonymy in uh, this, this remembrance, right? Uh, he was instructing us to think of him when we partake of the bread and the cup. Not that his body and his blood physically become the bread and the cup, but that we are to remember him. Again, going back to to what he said, he gave us a purpose statement. You are to do this in remembrance of me. Um, That's my view. That's the view of this church. And I think that is the correct view. Again, with a little friendly, winky face. Uh, Yeah, He kind of went both ways, actually. Um, within just a, a number of pages of some of his writings, he'll say that to, to partake of the Lord's Supper is to partake of salvation. But then a couple pages later, he'll kind of correct himself and say, no, salvation is by, by faith alone and in Christ alone. So it, it's hard reading through Luther's writings to kind of pin him down and say, well, this is what he believed because he was quite often in a, a transitional state of mind, right? He's trying to figure stuff out. I, I think that where he landed, he was definitely, no, that has nothing to do with salvation. But there was a time when he was trying to work through things and he was still holding on to that as being fundamental and vital to his salvation. And we don't want to be proof texts and just taking one verse or one passage out of context and, and isolating that. All scripture is God-breathed, right? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And we need to view scripture as a whole, interpreting scripture by scripture, and uh, not isolating certain sections. All right, well, let's look at, I know that we, we deviated pretty far from Mark today, um, but let's go back and let's wrap up a couple things within Mark. Looking at Mark 14, verse 24, 
it says that he said to them, this is my body of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so the, the blood of the covenant is a, a reference to the inauguration of the new covenant. That's very important to realize. Uh, you can go back and read about that in Jeremiah 31, 31, Ezekiel 36. We've talked about that before in the past. And Jesus is saying, I am initiating that now. This is what's going on. So this is big. This is huge. Jesus coming on the scene and again, changing the liturgy of the, the Passover and saying, no, we're going to do something new. This is an initiation of this new covenant. In verse 25, it says, truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here, doesn't that seem to imply that the there's a physical future kingdom of God where Jesus will commune with his church? Uh, I think it absolutely does, that he is sharing his plans for a future literal kingdom, saying, I'm going to one, one day drink of this uh, fruit of the vine again with you in the kingdom of God. I think we should expect a physical kingdom. We can't just say, well, there's, there's only a spiritual kingdom. Jesus isn't going to come back and, and rule physically because he said, no, one day I'm, I'm going to share this with you. And verse 26 says that after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they sang a song. They headed back to the Mount of Olives toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, this is now the, the sixth day of Passion Week. Jesus is mere hours away from his death. Uh, next week, we're going to be picking it up and looking at the, the account in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is very important, though not quite as important as some around here claim that it is. Um, but before the Garden of Gethsemane, there's this section in verses 27 through 31 that talks about uh, Peter denying Christ. And Jesus is predicting that Peter is going to deny him. And we'll look at that here in a few weeks uh, when that's actually fulfilled. And Peter actually does deny Christ. We'll go back and we'll look at the, the prediction and the fulfillment together. And then even jump forward and we'll look at John 21 when Jesus comes and restores Peter and uh, kind of lifts him up after this terrible uh, fall that he has when he's denying the Lord. God, we do thank you that uh, you established the new covenant in your blood that uh, you have welcomed us Gentiles into that new covenant that you're not done, but you are going to uh, fulfill that new covenant and the initial promises of that new covenant by including Israel, that all Israel will be saved and will know you and that we are uh, blessed to be grafted into your grace and your righteousness. God, we thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for the bride of Christ. Pray that as we fellowship with each other, that you would be high and lifted up in, in our hearts and our minds, and that we would uh, please you in everything we think, do, and say. Amen.